we're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, this morning, the unions that represent workers for higher and lower education are awaiting word from the governor's office about the proposed, uh, proposed furlough plan that's to take place next month. We talked this morning with Christian Fern, executive director of the University of Hawaii Professional Assembly. Uh, the news took not just the union, but apparently even the UH president by surprise. I actually had a meeting scheduled with President Lasner yesterday afternoon, and it was not planned around the furloughs. He wasn't aware of it at the time that he had scheduled the meeting. And so what were we able to learn? I wasn't able to learn very much, actually. I don't think many of the employers, state employers have the specific plans for how they're going to have to attempt to implement the furloughs effective January 1st. Are you expecting something later this week, hopefully? From the administration? Uh, yeah, I, I believe that one of the UH officers, Vice President for Community Colleges, Erica LaCroix, she's the chief spokesperson for the university in collective bargaining negotiations. President Lazenar had indicated that she'd be reaching out to me to have a discussion about it. All right, and then you can get word to your membership to try and figure out who's going to be affected? Yes, so that we have a better idea of how it's going to be implemented. Uh, I mean, as you can imagine, implementing a furlough uh, with uh, university faculty is uh, very difficult to do. We have nine-month faculty, 11-month faculty, you know, doing various job duties, anywhere from instruction to extension agents, librarians. So we need to see the details of how they want to plan to, uh, you know, attempt to implement this. And the announcement about the furloughs comes as, you know, the administration and the faculty senate and the union have been talking about possible reorganization, how to deal with the, the cuts, you know, just because the budget shortfall is tremendous. Yes. So how does this yes. furlough aspect complicate that? I think that's one of the questions that we're going to have for the university because, you know, there are so many questions about how the university plans on, you know, meeting their budgetary needs. We don't know exactly how it's going to impact um, you know, again, until we have the details on how they plan on implementing it, you know, it, there's still there's still so many questions. I think the definition of a furlough is a temporary leave, and I don't know how you do that with UH faculty. I suspect that they're going to try and utilize non-instructional days, but then that wouldn't, to me, meet the definition of a furlough. It'd be more along the lines of a pay cut. And what is the union proposed? as you folks have been meeting with the administration, because there's a whole consultant confer thing, right? Yes. You know, the state administration reached out to the unions to start, they wanted to open up negotiations to discuss furloughs. And the union has not agreed to open up the current collective bargaining agreement on the topic of furloughs, but we have met and we've been asking questions and we don't feel as though our questions have been answered yet the governor feels compelled to unilaterally implement the furloughs anyway. Now, where are we at with the contract talks? When does your current contract end and, you know, talk about the reopener? So the current collective bargaining agreement runs through June 30th of 2021. This was a four-year agreement that we reached back in 2017. There was a reopener in 2019, but only on the topic of a pay increase as well as the UTF contributions. So at this time, there is no reopener to discuss furloughs. The state is asking us to reopen. We're asking questions and don't feel as though our questions are being answered adequately to compel us to reopen the contract and consider furloughs as an option. Does your contract say, though, that you have to start talking by a certain date? That's for successor bargaining. So there's two different bargainings actually going on at the same time. The state is trying to open a current contract, but we're also engaging in successor bargaining for the next contract period, which begins July 1st of 2021. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so have you started so, those, yeah, those talks? Those are going on simultaneously. So at this point, though, can you share about what the union has proposed? We actually, we had some discussions about, you know, possibly a retirement incentive that we, we discussed with the university and the UH administration and UPA 
got well along our way in our discussion. We've been sharing this information with our members, and I think people were hoping that there would be some sort of agreement. It went over to the state, and it's been with the governor and the chief negotiator, the head of DHERD, Brett and we haven't heard back whether or not they support it or don't support it. We're hearing anecdotally that there were some concerns about equity with other bargaining units, et cetera. So there were discussions that were taking place. I think the university administration and UHPA recognized that this could be a potential viable option for some cost savings, you know, to assist the university in moving forward. But again, we still haven't heard back a definitive answer from the state with respect to what they're feeling on it is. We are in very unusual times, and I think both sides have to give. But, you know, there there is talk, I know, uh, with the other government unions about legal action. UHPA, of course, is considering potential legal action. We're awaiting to see what the justification that the governor feels that he has the right to unilaterally impose the furloughs. We don't believe he has that right since we are in the middle of a contract. It's a signed document by the university president, the Board of Regents, the governor, and UHPA. So we don't believe he has the right to simply unilaterally implement that. We're still trying to understand, and I don't believe the governor gave a clear answer yesterday when he was asked, you know, what justification he has in order to take this action. Before any steps are taken, we need to have a better understanding of the position of the the governor. And clarify, because I believe a number of uh, government employees got a letter from the governor. I don't believe the Department of Education employees did, and I don't think the University of Hawaii employees did. Is that because it's got to go through the board, the regents? Yeah, it's, we aren't clear. We've got a copy of the, the email that was sent. We believe it was only sent to the executive branch employees because we understand that the Department of Education, as well as University of Hawaii employees, none of them received that notice from the governor. I have to assume that because the University of Hawaii and DOE are separate employers that they felt that they needed to send something out on their own. So the university actually sent something after the announcement uh, yesterday afternoon. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, and this helps us understand, you know, what's at play here. Thank you for uh, reaching out, and um, happy holidays. All right. And just uh, keep us posted. We will. And that was the conversation we had this morning with Christian Fern, Executive Director of UPA, the union that represents higher education workers. We were talking about the proposed, proposed two-day state furloughs to deal with a, a budget shortfall. Uh, the furloughs amount to savings of about $300 million a year. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More information at proservice.com slash coronavirus. Next time on The World, activists in Mexico lobbied their government for a decade to legalize recreational marijuana, and the Senate there has approved a bill that would make it legal. A final vote could come early next year with plenty of restrictions. Still, Mexico could become the world's largest market for recreational weed. Our story from Mexico City, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. While listening to this year's Christmas playlist, the 1999 album of Rilly uh, Kalikimaka captured our attention and inspired today's backyard quiz. Take a listen for yourself. (laughs) 
spend Christmas on Christmas Island. How would you like to spend a holiday away across the sea? How would you like to spend Christmas on Christmas Island? How would you like to hang your stockings on a great big So one of the first things that came to mind was, where the heck is Christmas Island? Well, we were listening closely to the late Willie Kay's lyrics when we dug up the answer. So if you want to play, call up 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide, along with civic and community initiatives for residents. Learn more at NareetHawaii.com. Something pretty monumental happened very quietly last month. A new hybrid electric airplane made by California-based Ampere flew from Kahului to Hana and back again on a single charge. It's the first time such a plane has completed a demonstration flight on an actual airline flight. Ampere, which has been part of the Hawaii Startup Accelerator Program, Elemental Accelerator, and its hybrid electric plane, will continue its one-month demonstration with Mokulele Airlines. Stan Little, CEO of Southern Airways, praised the flight. The company acquired Mokulele last year and continued the experimental partnership with Ampere and Elemental Accelerator. The partnership, I think, is something that will continue well into the future. In addition to test flying the aircraft in Hawaii in 2020, we intend to be the first airline to put the aircraft in service, possibly as early as 2022 or 2023, so that Mokalele Airlines passengers are the first passengers in the world to fly on a hybrid electric aircraft in a commercial capacity. You know, as with all airlines here at Southern and Mokalele, the cost of fuel is one of our biggest expenses, and it's poised to only go higher in the future. So as we look for different areas where we can control costs and lower the price for the consumer, cutting the cost of fuel and power is a much greater option for us than trying to control other costs like labor um, and, and infrastructure. And that's where the partnership with Amp Air and Elemental Accelerator really makes the difference for airlines like Southern and Mokalele. We intend to be the first in the country to put passengers on hybrid electric aircraft. And these guys are leading the technology revolution in that, in that sphere. So this, this partnership is really critical, not just to our competitive advantage, but to our success going against the major airlines moving forward. Bree Soku is the product manager at Ampere. He spoke with the conversations Jason Ubai about the company and what its test flight means for the aviation industry. So Ampere is one of the leading electrification companies in the world. We are upgrading aircraft uh, from their conventional configuration uh, to hybrid, and eventually we will be moving into the full electrification of aircraft and having them operate globally. What we're doing in Hawaii is a world first. Uh, we are operating on a commercial route between Kahului Airport and Hana with the support of Elemental Accelerator and our other project partner, Mokulela Airlines. Can you tell me about the uh, demonstration uh, route that you're doing uh, with Mokulela Air Airlines on Maui? So we chose the Kahului to Hana route uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one, it's a, it's a short route. I believe it's only 28 miles or so, and it takes about uh, 12 to 15 minutes to fly that route. So it's a nice short route uh, to demonstrate our hybrid electric technology. 
Uh, it's also a route that's kind of the same island, so from a logistics perspective, it's uh, pretty easy as this is still an experimental platform. So we are not allowed to take uh, paying passengers on this aircraft, but I did get the chance to fly with our test pilot to Hana and also all over Maui, and it was a beautiful flight, nice and easy. Uh, and we also burned a lot less fuel than a normal aircraft would. And how often is it running? So we're shooting for uh, a daily cadence uh, of operations uh, that's uh, shooting for at least one round trip, uh, most often two round trips a day uh, between Kahului Airport and Hana Airport. Uh, so our test pilot, Justin Gillen, is doing a fantastic job of uh, keeping the aircraft uh, maintained uh, and uh, flying that route. You might have seen uh, uh, the aircraft uh, over the uh, coastline on the way to Hana. Cool. And can you tell me a bit about more, a uh, bit more about the uh, airplane? Uh, I guess well, how is it? Uh, looking at it, how would it be different from uh, uh, one of Mokulele's normal airplanes? So uh, this aircraft, uh, in its conventional configuration, has kind of two piston engines. Uh, what we've done is we removed the front piston engine and put in our electric propulsion system. Uh, so it's an electric motor, some uh, control electronics, uh, and then it has a battery on the underside of the aircraft uh, protected by kind of a, a pod, uh, an aero-optimized pod. For this configuration, it burns roughly half the amount of fuel. Uh, now, we are working with uh, Mokulele Airlines to explore how to electrify their planes uh, that they operate inter-island. Uh, that's the Cessna 208 uh, caravan. Uh, so that uh, particular model only has one uh, large uh, propeller, one large uh, combustion engine, and we're exploring ways to uh, make that hybrid. Okay. Um, as far as uh, on-the-ground operations, did what had to be modified or changed to accommodate your airplane? Right. So for this uh, aircraft, the electric eel, uh, that's what we call the, the upgrade of the Cessna 337 Skymaster, uh, for this aircraft, uh, it requires charging on the ground. Uh, so we did have to work with the airport and uh, had conversations with Hawaiian Electric Company about the infrastructure that was available at the airport. Uh, eventually, we were able to get some high-level uh, power uh, to the hangar where we're storing this aircraft at, uh, and that was enough to be able to charge the aircraft uh, in between flights, uh, and it takes about 30 minutes to charge. Uh, so some minor infrastructure upgrades uh, to support this project demonstration. One of the things that we're doing is exploring with uh, the airport, with Mokulele Airlines, with the utilities, uh, about how to install infrastructure uh, to support electric aircraft in the future. Uh, but for now, what we're considering is an architecture for Mokulele's planes uh, that would initially be infrastructure independent. So they wouldn't need... Uh, you know, a, a fast charging station at the airport to be able to operate. Uh, but they still would be hybrid and they would still burn less fuel than the traditional aircraft. Our goal is to get this technology into the market uh, quickly and, and safely, you know, to be able to carry passengers uh, and uh, make sure that is uh, certified. Um, so that, that takes a, a lot of uh, effort and uh, kind of our strategy is uh, to kind of remove any barriers of entry into that market, uh, and, and infrastructure has, you know, been a, a large kind of barrier even for ground electric vehicles. Uh, you know, we've heard of challenges getting uh, charging stations, uh, you know, installed uh, all over the world in, in, certain, in certain areas. So we want to be mindful of bringing the economic benefit to our potential customers and the environmental benefits to communities uh, around these airports. What have been the big lessons you've learned so far from this demonstration? A lot of the things that we've learned over the course of this project demonstration so far, you know, has, has dealt with uh, infrastructure, working with the, the airports to figure out and uh, you know exactly where we can charge the electric infrastructure that's available at the airport, and building again that plan uh, to electrify airports in the future. Uh, second has been working with Mokulele Airlines. We've had some of their pilots fly our plane. Uh, to understand kind of what the impact is for the airline operationally, uh, as well as things like charge time and turnaround times uh, uh, that, uh, you know, are key for their operations. 
Uh, so working on different fronts uh, uh, with different stakeholders really to bring this technology to market, we're learning uh, quite a bit. What do you see in the future for your company, uh, both here in Hawaii and uh, nationally? In Hawaii, uh, we are looking at working with Mokanova Airlines and Southern Airways uh, to, for them to be uh, one of our launch customers for a hybrid version of their planes. Uh, so we're hoping to, uh, in the next few years, to be back in Hawaii uh, with certified aircrafts that uh, you know, the flying public can buy tickets on. Uh, and that certification would unlock uh, you know, a, a bunch of other operators and, and opportunity for Ampere uh, to introduce uh, those kinds of airplanes all over the U.S. and eventually all over the world. Uh, so within a few years, you know, hyperelectric aviation uh, should be pretty widespread. As far as uh, a passenger, uh, what, what will be the difference flying with a hybrid is, um, and the current technology right now? All right. So, so with the hybrid aircraft uh, and uh, even uh, with um, uh, kind of experiences with the, the ground EVs, you know, the Teslas, even some of the hybrids, the Priuses, for example, uh, that they're quieter. Uh, so for the, the passenger inside the aircraft, uh, you, do get, you do get a much quieter um, experience. Uh, so that's one of the big changes um, that passengers can expect to see. Uh, it's uh, also a, a smoother flight. Uh, so, you know, pits and engines uh, create a lot of vibration in the cabin. Uh, so there's a little bit less of that um, uh, when it comes to the hybrid electric flight. Can you tell me more about uh, the company's next steps? Sure. Uh, so Ampere's next steps is to scale this technology to larger planes. I mentioned uh, the nine-passenger plane that Mokovele currently flies, and, and also a 19-passenger plane uh, as well that we would call the Eco Otter SX. Um, the range of these planes would be you know, sufficient to fly any route that Mokovele currently flies, and you know, upwards of 200 to 300 miles as well. Uh, so we're look, really looking at uh, scaling the, the technology upwards and providing these benefits to more and more communities. That was Brees Zoku, product manager at Amp Air, speaking with the conversation's Jason Ubai about its flight demonstration from Kahului to Hana using a hybrid electric-powered airplane. Amp Air has been part of the Hawaii Startup Accelerator Program, Elemental Accelerator. It is now time for our reality check segment. Honolulu Civil Beats education reporter Suvan Lee has been looking at student scores during this time of working remotely. Good morning, Suvan. Uh, good morning. So I was kind of intrigued to learn that DOE had a dashboard that was they were reporting this stuff. Yeah, exactly. So this is a new dashboard that they created, an interactive dashboard that covers various different categories, grades, um, PPE supplies in schools, student attendance, how many students are distance learning, teacher telework, school meals, etc. But this is something that the Board of Education had asked the DOE to compile uh, to see if their 2021 reopening plan was working. So this is the first data snapshot we first received since they've created that platform. So the results that we saw posted up there, not so good. Well, what is interesting about the data is that it's, um, it, it does tell us um, some um, how some students fared this first quarter, the first quarter um, going from August 17th to October 2nd, of course. So we're looking at just that very minimum window. But what it shows us is that many students received failing grades. And on the other hand, many students did not receive a grade at all. 
um, because either their school chose not to issue a grade or because they just simply didn't have enough data for that student's work to issue a grade. So I think that tells us two things. One is that um, students are struggling to sort of keep up with the distance learning, um, at least in the first quarter, and um, as well as the fact that many students are just simply not completing the work, so their teachers can't evaluate them. Um, but the dashboard um, lays that out per grade level, um, elementary students up to high schoolers, and what stood out to me was how the percentages seemed quite high for failing grades at the high school level and the lack of data at the high school level and with elementary levels how well they don't they don't get grades of course but they get meets proficiency or well below proficiency um, scores those were also sort of tipping high and um, based on my observation of that yeah, I mean, that is a little worrisome when we're, we're talking high schoolers because, you know, they're preparing to get into colleges. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, their transcripts are going to be what colleges look at for admission. And I know that the entire country right now is grappling with this as far as um, can you can you compare this year really fairly to any other normal year? I mean, all across the U.S., this is a um, a situation that no one has ever dealt with before. So when students interact with their learning or they're getting grades and they are adjusting quite, they had to adjust quite rapidly to this new academic environment. Are colleges going to um, adjust how they um, there are criteria for incoming freshmen? Of course. That is a distinct and I, I think um, a current possibility and reality. So um, I, I don't think anyone is looking at these grades in a vacuum. Now, for the lower uh, the, the the lower education, elementary age, middle school. I mean, the, the the numbers are down, and it's in the core subjects, right? English, math. Sure, sure. What the data are, or the DOE is collecting data on are those elemental subjects. So we're talking like English, read English and reading, mathematics, and then at the high school level, like science, social studies, math, and English. So the core subjects. Um, but what's interesting also about the dashboard findings is that at the elementary age level, you're seeing more students return to the classroom. So, right, there is that disparity between who can go back right now and who cannot. And that totally depends on the availability and um, uh, whether students can accommodate students back into the classroom. So elementary kids are going back at a more frequent rate than the upper level kids, um, but it's it's just happening right now. So I don't think we'll see the results of that um, on student achievement until uh, third or fourth quarter even of next year. Okay, so we need to be checking that dashboard to see uh, how our, our uh, cakey are doing. Thanks so much, Suvon. Uh, absolutely, thank you for having me on. That was reporter Suvon Lee with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. On Monday, Hawaii's four electors will cast their vote for president and vice president based on the popular vote. You may recall that in the last election in 2016, one of the four votes went to Bernie Sanders instead of Hillary Clinton. Since that time, the Democratic Party has tightened up its process. It switched from a caucus-driven process to a uh, party-run primary. We talked to Hermina Morita, one of the four electors who are expected to vote for President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Uh, Marita, a Kauai resident, is a former lawmaker and former chair of the Public Utilities Commission. She shared that the electoral college process was something she hadn't paid much attention to before. But given the recent attempts by President Trump to reach into the electoral college process to stay in office, more eyes are on that process. To tell you the truth, this is the first time I'm paying attention to this, <laughs> you know, especially for Hawaii. I mean, I've I've never participated in the Electoral College and never even gave it a second thought. And so when I ran for the position, I was 
pretty excited about it because, you know, this is pretty historic given what has been going on. So a couple of weeks ago, I received my agenda from Office of Elections. And, and so, you know, by law, the electors meet at the state capitol at 2 o'clock on December 14th. There are four electors and first alternates and second alternates. So it looks like the Office of Election invited 12 people, um, the four presidential electors, the four first alternates, and the four second alternates. And according to the agenda, it begins with greeting the electors, then voting for the president, then voting for the vice president, and then announcing the results, and then the certification of the presidential and vice presidential ballot envelope. Then we sign the certificate, and then we certify the certificate again, I guess, and then sign cover letters, and then that's it. I think the last go-around, 2016, I think uh, the four electors, they were, I think, supposed to go with Clinton, and one of them went rogue. That was a surprise. I I like the label. I like the label, faithless elector. (laughs) Talk about that. So apparently this person voted for Bernie Sanders. And uh, I think there were seven people across the nation that were faithless electors. And so what it means is that they didn't stick to the popular votes within their state. And they voted for someone who was not on the ballot. And to some voters, that was maybe shocking. Yeah, I, I, you know, because I think the process is you represent the popular vote in your state. And so you were supposed to vote for that popular vote, the winner of that popular vote. Right. So that what that might have shocked us in 2016. But given mm-hmm. what we've seen of late, it just seems like there's you know, shock after shock. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, do we need to change the way we do this and elect our president? Well, I think the Democratic Party did in part do that. You know, you sign an affidavit that you would be voting for the person that you said you were going to support. And I'm not sure if you have to identify yourself as a Biden supporter or, you know, the other viable candidate was Sanders at the time we had the election. You know, the election was held in July, early July. I think the election for the presidential electors started in the last week of June and continued to the first week of July. And so at that time, the Democratic presidential candidate wasn't selected yet. And so... The electors, I think, have to declare who they would support should they be should they win the position of elector. For myself, I had committed to Biden pretty early on, and so you know, there's no wavering for me on uh, <laughs> who I support. And I think, you know, again, I I, I was elected to the this position because, you know, because of my support for for uh, Biden. And also, the other thing that I brought up in my statement to the delegates that were voting, that, you know, the Democratic Party really worked hard in trying to get more people to participate in the presidential primary. So this was the first year that we had the party-run presidential primary. And which is different from the caucuses that they used to have. And for me, it was a culmination of supporting that whole process and, you know, really reflecting who the party supported. So there are a lot of firsts, really, with this election. Yes. It's been long uh, a Democratic, you know, driven um, system here. You know, Democrats have yes. just dominated local politics, right? But then, you know, right. we're seeing, you know, like you said, we've got the we've got the progressive, you know, movement. I think this year we've had the the new party, the shopping party. You know, right. um, you know, you've got some dissension, and I don't know if it varies from island to island. You know, and especially when the party had their caucuses 
a lot of it dealt with who would show up on that particular day at that time. So, you know, you have to be ready and available to show up at these precinct caucuses to select the Hawaii's choice for, for the presidential primary in, at the national convention. And so by moving towards the um, party-run presidential primary, the PPP, I mean, it really opened it up to the entire membership of the Democratic Party. To more and, inclusive. And, you know, it was sort of a prelude to the mail-in ballots for the primary and general election, giving everybody practice to that. Any thoughts that you have, though, just about kind of process and maybe anything else that you think ought to be tweaked? Well, I think, you know, I think we really have to look at the Electoral College and whether it's obsolete or not, you know, nationally. Uh, You know, definitely, you know, just to have a handful of states determine the outcome you know, and especially when I don't know what the count is right now, but close to 8 million votes that Biden has over Trump is definitely, I think, you know, the Electoral College needs to be really scrutinized now. And I think, you know, for the Democratic Party of Hawaii, after having a successful presidential run primary, you know, there's no way that we should go back to you know, the caucus method of selecting a candidate. Do you favor um, it, then the mm-hmm. the popular vote versus the electoral college? You know, after losing two electoral colleges and not the popular vote, I think we seriously need to think about it. And especially when the most populous states are overlooked, you know, when you're looking at California, New York, Texas, and you're leaving it to a handful of much smaller states. I mean, that's concerning. You know, for me, when I put forward my name to be an elector, I, you know, I I felt that he was the strongest person to restore democracy and rule the law, you know, given his experience, both on the administrative side and the legislative side, that he could put together a really smart, diverse cabinet to fix the damage done the past four years. And especially now, given the crisis with COVID and the dire economic situation, this is what we all need in moving forward. You know, just the the most dedicated public servants to put their nose to the ground to get us through um, this time. So, you know, all I can say is that I'm really proud to be casting that vote for President-elect Biden and uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And I take with me all the hard work that the Democratic Party has done, especially with the party-run presidential primary, to get to this point. And besides Mina Morita, the three other Hawaii electors are Michael Goluyu Sr., John William Baikel, and Kainoa Kamehiva-Rego. They are to meet at the state capitol uh, at 2 p.m. on Monday to vote for Biden and Harris. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs in finance, marketing, and information systems. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Whether you listen for a few minutes at a time or all day long, whether you tune in for hard news or something a little less serious, when you listen to HPR1, you count on us to be a part of your day. Our end-of-year fun drive is coming up. Help us continue bringing you the quality content you rely on. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org and become a first-time member at $10 a month. Or, if you've given before, consider an additional gift. And thanks. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the Homa Shop offering art-inspired gift ideas for the holidays. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. 
Earlier in the show, the late Willie Kay song by the same name inspired us to visit Christmas Island. Although there are a couple of Christmas islands on the map, the one we're looking for is located almost 2,000 miles away, as the song lyrics refer to going across the sea, which for us would be the Pacific Ocean. History books tell us that Captain Cook visited the island on Christmas Eve, 1777, hence the name. Today it's known as uh, uh, Kirismas, because in the language of the Republic of Kiribati, the letters T and I are pronounced with an S sound. It's one of the line islands and at 235 square miles considered the largest atoll in the world. In 1995, Akiris Moss officially moved west of the international date line to make it one of the first inhabited places on Earth to celebrate New Year's Day. Time-wise, it's two hours ahead of Tokyo and 22 hours ahead of Hawaii. And congratulations to our winner, Matthew Lucas. Well, he's familiar with the various Christmas islands because he happens to be a University of Hawaii researcher in the geography department. Congrats to you. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. How'd you like to stay up late like the islanders do? Wait for Santa to sailing with your presents in a canoe. If you ever spend Christmas on Christmas Island, you will never stray your everyday of Christmas dreams come true. You know, this pandemic has taken a major toll on the arts. HPR's Noe Tanagawa has been tracking the arts and culture scene and joins us this morning. Hi, Noe. Hey, good morning, Catherine. Yep, um, yep, people in all the creative industries have kind of taken a hit by this pandemic because, I mean, their whole purpose is about communication with other people and i mean it is being done online but really the creative sector is so much more than zooming together right yes starting last april a group of uh, artists and creatives that began meeting weekly uh, on how to embed the creative sector in hawaii's economic recovery that's the idea how to really put it to work terry skillman ceo of the hawaii arts alliance and other people made the case that hawaii's creatives are second responders delivering meaning and quality of life i mean she says in economic terms a 2017 americans for the arts study showed hawaii generated 205.6 million dollars of economic activity in the arts wow. and skillman says that means when we support the arts we're enhancing our lives and investing in the economy at the same time. At a recent Senate hearing, there was a new uh, move toward a new creative resurgence caucus there at the state legislature. We heard from educator, cultural practitioner, Snowbird Puanani Opaokalani Bento. All of our lives in Hawaii are touched by culture and the arts in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's in tourist programming, whether it's in the very first Hawaiian language-based theatrical production to be held and premiered at the University of Hawaii Manoa's Kennedy Theater, to sold-out audiences, seven out of eight performances sold out, saying to us, there is a need and an audience for this type of culture and arts experience. We need to see our creatives as an equal part of the sustainability of our economy and our island home. How do we provide and care for our creative sector as contributors to the overall health and well-being of our island home and our economies? That's the move now. I mean, how can Hawaii's wellspring of creativity be nourished and tapped, used? Snowbird Bento and others are making the case a legislative caucus could address that. Um, an arm of the new creative resurgence hui that's formed is working on emergent strategies along the lines of a book called Shaping Change, Changing Worlds by Adrienne Marie Brown. You might know her out of Detroit. They hope to form a legislative caucus similar to the Keiki Caucus and the Women's Caucus, you know, Catherine? Mm -hmm. But this one would be aimed at um, bringing our amazing creative capital to bear on shaping the future going forward. 
I'm glad somebody's Dave looking Mark. at this. I really yeah. am. We need it. Well, you know, it's taken a while for this to come to us. Let me tell you, last year there was zero creative economy bills presented at the ledge. So look, here it's organizing. Dave Mott is executive director of the Hawaii Symphony. That's a nearly $5 million organization we have fought for for years here now. 64 salaried musicians, 12 full-time employees. The symphony is really so important because it provides basic income for professional musicians to live here, to be able to perform for ballet, to make extra money, opera, community theaters, and importantly, they teach the hundreds of quality young musicians that Hawaii is known for producing. Here's Dave Moss. The pandemic has made our future a bit daunting. Uh, and something that really, truly keeps me up night after night. These past eight months have shown us the future holds the opportunity for the arts and culture sector to play a role in a respectful return to tourism for Hawaii. Music and art create a sense of place that is truly unrivaled by any other industry. From an economic perspective, the arts and culture sector contributes over $2.5 billion combined to our local economy, and it employs over 12,000 individuals here in Hawaii. We have the economic data that truly shows the impact when investment is made to support the arts. On average, every $1 that is invested into this sector, nearly $6 in taxable revenue is returned. We have an opportunity as we emerge from this pandemic to shape our local arts and culture sector to be truly reflective of this community. And this is our top priority here at the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. Mm. It's interesting because Dave Moss is pointing out the idea that, you know, Hawaii is not just here to reproduce the Western canon of music, you know, even in classical music. It's here to forge the music that our particular heritage, our geography, our culture make possible here. This is our story. It's really interesting to, to value that, you know. Yeah. I have to mahalo Dr. Akiyami Glenn. She's a linguist, founder of the Popolo Project, and Dr. Lua Fata Simanu Klut. She's director of Pacific Islanders in the Arts because they instigated the creative research in Hui. And Glenn mm. says it grew out of the way we were all responding, you know, to the current crisis. We were going onto Netflix and watching everything we could to soothe us. We were playing music that mattered. We were digging deeply into our ethnic cultures and finding sustenance in the food that our parents made for us. And it seemed as we were building and as people were trying to figure out what we were doing and how we were going to maintain through this pandemic, that the arts, our cultures, the creative urge of our, of our communities was central to how we were making it through. Our group, Creative Resurgence, has found in the sharing and talking story over these several months that we do have some values in common. First is this idea that Hawaii itself is a creative place. It's not just a place that creatives live, but the aina itself is in constant acts of creation. And we can see that all around us and we are inspired by it. And we also thrive because of it. All of us have the creative urge within us. Creativity is really important to how we connect with each other, how we understand ourselves, and how we can imagine a future going forward. And uh, really want to encourage our legislators and others to think about how this creative urge that is evidenced all around us, how we can really center that, not only center it because of the economic benefit, but the way that it reaffirms our humanity in a time when we all truly need it. Wow. Yeah, so what's next for this, I guess, mm. arts movement? Well, that uh, Creative Resurgence Caucus uh, has its work cut out, should it form. They're proposing six bills for the 2021 legislature. None of them require funding. What would they do? Well, create a tourist tax for creative industries, a labor registry for creative workers. It's been tough for some of them to get some of this CARES money, and maybe Works Progress Administration kind of ideas. I mean, some of those are already under discussion, and there are other ideas as well. I mean, mahalo to Senator Brian Taniguchi from this sector. He has been the sole champion of the arts at the state legislature uh, over many, many years. Um, if people want to assist or get involved, there's information at the Hawaii Arts Alliance website. You can encourage your legislator to join the Creative Caucus and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, do you buy all this, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, no. It, it's it's something to think about. You know, how do we um, how do we rebuild the economy? Right? We have to take stock of what we've got. Can we do it in a creative way? 
you know. And okay, here's here's an idea for you from a notoriously taciturn creative, okay? Kurt Vonnegut, author of Slaughterhouse Five, real eye opener in the nineteen sixties. In 2006, Miss Lockwood, a teacher at Xavier High School in New York, assigned her students to write a letter to any author. And unlike the others, Vonnegut responded. Musician educator Aaron Salah reads Vonnegut's letter here. It was written the year before he died. Vonnegut describes the objective of art and culture. Dear Xavier High School and Miss Lockwood, I thank you for your friendly letters. You sure know how to cheer up a really old geezer what I had to say to you, moreover, would not take long. To wit, practice any art, music, singing, dancing, acting, drawing, painting, sculpting, poetry, fiction, essays, reportage, no matter how well or badly. Not to get money and fame, but to experience becoming, to find out what's inside you, to make your soul grow. Seriously, I mean, starting right now, do art and do it for the rest of your lives. Here's an assignment for tonight, and I hope Miss Lockwood will flunk you if you don't do it. Write a six-line poem about anything but rhyme. Make it as good as you possibly can, but don't tell anybody what you're doing. Tear it up into teeny-weeny pieces and discard them. You will find that you already have been gloriously rewarded for your poem. You have experienced becoming, learned a lot more about what's inside you, and you have made your soul grow. Wow. Food for thought. Thank you so much, Noe. Really something Thank uh, you, Catherine. to underscore. Happy Aloha Friday. All right. Aloha. We've been talking with Noitani Gawa. She's been giving us an update on the current art scene. You can read her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for today. Up tomorrow, we will be in mini pledge drive mode. We'll hear from Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell as he reflects on his time in office at Honolulu Hale. It's a job he loves. Give us some feedback. Share your hopes for the new year. Have you lost anyone to COVID this year? How would you like for them to be remembered? Grieving has been tough this year, hasn't it? Call our Talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.